have I got a story for you. It's about an improv performer, teacher, artist, screenwriter, YouTuber, and mercantile, or is it mercantile, exchange employee, who if you saw today, you'd most likely know as coach. What a collection of eclectic experiences our guest has had. I know. Today's sponsor is actually the most famous eclectic collection of colors in the world. Rainbows. Where does one start and the other one end? Who knows, kids? It's magic. Ever wonder if there was really a pot of gold at the end of it? The real question you need to ask yourself is which end is the end? Imagine the poor guy who found what he thought was the end, only to truly find out it was the beginning. Rainbows, tricking treasure hunters and giving color to gray skies since the beginning of time. Don't rainbows make it okay to hope for a little rain? Because when the sun comes out, we all know what every eye is hoping to spy, that colorful arc that will turn any frown upside down, a rainbow. Unicorns appreciate them, and you should too. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. Friend, follow, subscribe. Get to know someone who might be out of your everyday ordinary circle and who you might have more in common with than you thought. Get the pod. It's on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart. And if you'd like to be on and share your story, letting others get to know you, we'd love to have you on. Just send us a message, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. That's at getting, the number two, no, the letter U, pod. And now. Getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. On today's show, we are getting to know Nick. How's it going, sir? Uh, it's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. You, uh, I'm a big fan. Even though I don't know you, I feel like I do kind of know you because I've seen your face a lot. You hear your voice a lot. You're constantly posting and putting stuff up. Um, great basketball breakdown stuff. Uh, so that's got to be a little weird. Do you get that a lot where people almost like feel like they know you, but you have no idea who they are? Um, well, I mean, I, certainly people will come up to me and talk to me and say hello. And um, that's always exciting uh, when that happens. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just it's sort of the nature of the thing. It's it's the whole the whole, you know, thing of b-ball breakdown is that it's a conversation. So, you know, me interacting with everybody and, and you know, connecting that way has always been the root of why I thought it, it did so well. So it just seems like a natural extension that, you know, people are going to sort of feel like they know me as it is anyway. Yeah, I, it would just freak me out that people are constantly like, hey, coach, hey, Nick. And you're like, I have no idea who any of you fools are. <laughs> well, and let's not pretend that happens everywhere. Although for some reason <laughs> in L.A., when I go to Chipotle, it happens a lot. I don't know why Chipotle, but um, I mean, listen, if I go to an NBA game, you know, it's, it's a bit, it's what I we call a, a target rich environment. So, you know, that's easy 
but uh, but it is it still it still boggles my mind too uh, a lot of the time that people will recognize me and see me and it's it's always a nice experience where I make sure I say hello and get their name just so I know who they are too and uh, it's 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 really kind of crazy with the times we live in. Yeah, it um the the social the social connection to strangers is something I have found um pretty fascinating because of social media, just feeling like you're connected to so many people that otherwise you would have no idea about. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the power of it, of it all, the whole thing. And, and the crazy thing is, you know, I don't know, uh, it's 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you, you simply would not be able to do this. Uh, if you didn't go to work for, you know, ESPN or your local sports station, that was it. There was no choice to do anything else. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me too of, uh, musically where you used to have to like get a label and I'm, I'm nothing musically, but I imagine, uh, with what Taylor Swift went through with her rights and putting out what the six albums that she had to like get that got bought. If she would have come out in today's era, like she's her own label, right? She's just producing, making her own stuff, loading it up to SoundCloud, Spotify herself. And she just owns it all. It's a, it's given so many people opportunities. Yeah. I mean, well, I think like, you know, Bieber got noticed that way. I think in the beginning, uh, you know, Billie Eilish is another one of those artists who's like, you know, recorded her first awesome album in her bedroom. So, you know, I was a guy, you know, back in college who would I would edit videos and then to put music underneath it, I'd have to go to the local, you know, um, stereo store or whatever who had a VCR that had a audio dub feature. And they let me hook up a CD player to it. And I literally, you know, in real time, hit play and record right. to put music underneath things. So I have been waiting, you know, for the technology to catch up for a long time. And, um, it, you know, finally it has, and I, would already, I'd always envisioned that we'd be able to have this. It just seemed like I couldn't understand in the mid nineties why we didn't have it earlier. Um, and it was always a frustrating thing. And so I was always early to jump on as the, the, whatever the newest technology was and then struggle through it when it didn't work perfectly. Uh, and then, you know, interestingly enough, because of those struggles, you kind of learn, uh, how to troubleshoot anything, um, simply because you had every issue in the book. Um, and so that ends up helping me now. Yeah. I, uh, I wish, so I grew up East coast. Um, and I wonder, did you, during that time, were you West coast, like in a technology hub or where were you through the nineties? Well, and and then I was in Chicago I grew up in Chicago. And, um, and so, you know, as far as, Tech, no, there was no notion of that. I mean, back then, even it was, I mean, Silicon Valley was a thing, but it wasn't like, you know, like it is now. It was before even the tech bubble in the late 90s. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, I was definitely an outlier, I feel like, uh, walking around where I was trying to do stuff. I was in a video editor, uh, actually, way before this. Um, although even then, that was like right out of college. I was, I was coaching, too. So, um, and I was working on a lot of films and commercials. So I was, you know, absorbing a lot of, uh, information that really ultimately helped me do what I do now, even though it might not have felt that way at the time. Um, and there's also no question that the, I would look at the way they film these things on these, these are major, you know, Hollywood productions that come into Chicago to film, uh, or commercials. And I would just be like, that's just, that can't possibly be the best way to do what you're doing, <laughs> uh, how to film it or how to cover it or how to whatever. And, um, you know, who am I? I'm this lonely, you know, this, this, this lowly PA on the, on the, on the shoot. But, um, you know, I was I always felt that way. And it kind of mirrors the way I feel like how we coach, 
And there was always these issues I had with the, with the traditional fundamental way of coaching basketball that never, it just never made sense to me. And now finally in 2020, over the last, you know, I don't know, eight or eight or nine years, we finally understood a lot more clearly you know, how best to educate and how best to coach, or at least how to better coach and more optimally get through to communicate. And it's the game has changed. Right. Well, I actually was kind of interested in what did you notice back then um, film wise where people were filming that you were like, that's just silly. It should be done this way. Like what was the clunky way that they were uh, filming? <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the notion of like, you know, do we really the, like lighting is a big one, you know, because it takes forever and it's so clunky. And it's like, I mean, certainly now we, with like LEDs and I don't even think that they use them as the way they could, because you could change the every bit of color of an LED. You can change the dimming. They, they, they use hardly any electricity. And I remember looking at these gigantic lights and all the people they needed to run them and how long it took to set up and thinking there's just got to be a better way. You know, I mean, listen, eventually we'll probably have the size of a credit card will be a light and that, like that thickness and it'll hover in the air. You don't even right. need to stand for it. You certainly don't need a plug, you know, or a wire to, to power it like all those things, you know, and, and you got a sense even then, like in the 90s and even probably even sort of now. There's a sense that like the things that they're doing, the methods they're using are the same exact way they did it in the 40s. Yeah. And it's just shocking to me when whenever I see anything like that happen. I think that's kind of common in a lot of industries though, right? Like you do it because we've always done it this way. And people absolutely feel secure know. in that. And I get it. I remember getting into arguments with people about other things uh, because, you know, I remember, I mean, this is a weird memory, but we were trying to uh, get our, the gym time organized between when I was uh, assistant coach in high school and we had to deal with, you know, the girls volleyball and the, um, and the, and the girls basketball and all whatever else was taking the gym at the time. And I remember another coach came in from their sport and it was like, had all these ideas. And I remember arguing and saying, why can't we just do it the way we always did it? <laughs> Ideally because it was because the basketball guy priority. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly right. There's that notion of we, well, this is how it was done. That guy won a ton of games. He really must know what he's doing. And that is, that is true. But I always feel like there's, an, there's a better way to do things. And, um, and it kind of goes to like my criticism of a lot of these, um, you know, these old school uh, college coaches now who they're not going to change. They've won a lot of games, but it's, there's a lot of suboptimal coaching going on out there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, well, and I always kind of uh, do this almost in reverse order. I haven't figured out my podcast flow yet, <laughs> but I try to get people on okay. to like share their story. Um, but then I wound up just kind of talking to them and I enjoy that. Um, but I guess for formatting purposes, I should uh, formally ask you, <laughs> what do you believe or okay. what is your story? Um, well, I suppose this is like, how did I get into doing what I'm doing now? Can be. Absolutely. I kind of enjoy okay. the, the way uh, I mean, different know, people guess, take it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's like, what is my story? Uh, I am that guy who always <laughs> looked at things differently and processing differently. And I, I was a teacher for a while and I can remember even while I was a student, like in high school, um, there always seemed to be a bit of a delay for me to like really grasp what the teacher was saying. So like, for huh. instance, I was a year ahead in math and science, um, which probably wasn't even a good idea at the time. I feel like, you know, um, you know, uh, not emotionally, but what's the word I'm looking for, but you know, just, I, I wasn't the maturity? quite, um, 
ready to do that, like to do geometry as a freshman, even though I, I was tested well enough to do it. So I think, um, uh, gosh, my mind is much because I'll give you the word in a second. But nonetheless, um, but the point being that, like, I, could, I remember doing uh, calculus as a junior, and um, it was a three-semester course in my high school, so you did the first semester as a junior. And then I remember um, the next year, I don't think I did it. Ultimately, it was like it was kind of hard. I knew, like, whatever. But I do remember my friends who were still in the class for the second and the third semesters. I could, I could sit down and do all of that, all the problems without even thinking about it. It was so easy for me. Simply having it be six months later. I don't know if it's the osmosis of it for whatever reason, <laughs> but the reflection it. of it later was, you know, it would have been, I would have gotten this right away if the teacher just would have said this, okay? Like there were just these sentences that were missing. And maybe it's just because of the way I, uh, you know, uh, huh. you know, uh, assimilate information in my brain, but it was like, gosh, if anybody else was like me, then those sentences would help. And if you're not like me, well, then those sentences will help either way because they're getting it, you know, quicker as it is. So I kind of set out to adopt that, that kind of notion. I want to give that extra sentence or two to all those people that struggled to, to, uh, to understand this different, whatever information it was in whatever, you know, medium we're talking about. So it kind of, that's, that was always my motivation. Uh, you know, specifically with basketball, when you go back and look how people trained, I was good. I could play Division Three if I wanted to. I ended up going to Wisconsin and or visiting Wisconsin and fell in love and just went there and was a manager there. But um, but you know, if I had understood more properly how to train like we do now, then I would have. I know I would have been a lot better and I would have maximized a lot more. And it, not that it's frustrating, but you know, there are, there are times where it's like, man, if I had had that drill. Right. Or had that that kind of mindset from a coach to teach me how to play that a certain way. Oh, it would have been it would have been I would have been, you know, 100 percent better. Um, so, you know, and then even this notion of this like um, this like toxic masculinity feeling of like, well, you get to out, you get to play harder than the other guy. I so I think it. I hung my hat on. I'm just going to play harder than you. And that's going to make me better versus how about any of that skill stuff? Let's let's actually work on the skills and get you better that way versus like you're going to run harder than the other guy. Maybe that'll work out. It's, yeah, be tougher, give more effort. Away and, and luckily it is. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've noticed in a lot of your videos, they do. I, and I was wondering actually about this. Do you sometimes say stuff in like a first takey way to maybe like get reactions or are these like, legit core values that you're like no this is gospel it should be this way you know it's funny because there's two different voices I, I tend to have i think there's one on twitter and there's one on on youtube and certainly the videos i make i, I mean I, I actually there's like there's a consistency there i believe everything i say every once in a while and i usually even try and use like the sarcastic font or the troll font i suppose <laughs> um you know i might on, a, on twitter do that a little bit or know that it's provocative. Um, now that said, uh, you know, on, on YouTube titling is provocative or certainly that's how you get, you know, to be successful. So, you know, like for instance, today's video, uh, is, is all kind of provocative and it's going to get all the LeBron stands up in arms because I went through game six of the 2013 NBA finals, which is when the Ray Allen three pointed that tied the game at the end, oh, uh, yeah. improbably and like saved, it kind of saved LeBron's legacy for a while because, you know, what I, I kind of posted at the end is that, you know, imagine if all, after all that fanfare, they put this team together and they only won one title 
and they losing to the that Spurs team and then the 2011 Mavericks team, like that would have been a, a stain on his legacy, I imagine. Um, so it's going to be full throw to LeBron, you know, fans all over me. Um, and I, and I've already recognized that that's going to happen. That's, you know, but it's a good video and it really breaks down that game in a way that probably people don't remember. So, you know, so I believe I'm not out there just trolling and and doing the stuff that you see. Um, what's the guy on ESPN? Um, you know, well, Colin Cowherd or the other guy who's older, what's uh, Bayless? I I don't do that kind of crap. And I think that that's horrible what they do, but also I want to give them props because they've built a whole brand around it and they've been successful. And, you know, if you can figure that out and do it, then that's what you should do. Yeah. They, uh, definitely found their niche in the, uh, entertainment sports world. Um, to just be those, the the guys that just love, like they make hype hyperbole common. <laughs> it's uh, right. it, it's a neat. And, and it's by the way, I, if I do that, I I will believe it. Like I did a video several years ago now about how Steph how Steph Curry was a an elite defender, and uh, the title was really um, provocative. But I went down and I, but here's the thing: when I come at at these things, I got video. Uh, uh, proof, right? I, I yeah. have evidence like I come with. So it's not like I'm just sort of making stuff up. I'm like, here, now, did people want to believe the footage in front of their eyes? A lot did. A lot were like, oh, you know, I didn't realize that. Uh, but a lot, you know, there are people who tried to discredit me for that. It was crazy how that, like, stirred up everybody uh, at the time. But it also told me that, hey, I'm getting somewhere because this was still years ago where, you know, I wasn't as popular as I am now. And um, it really showed me how powerful it is the medium is and how you can actually shift narratives. And then, you know, it, the funny thing was, is that right after the video came out, uh, you know, Steph went on a tear defensively and just started killing people there. Timing, them, all you know, about timing. I think he, I think he wanted to make a point as well, uh, to back up the video. Did he, so did he get up with you about it? Like, do you get a message? Hey man, appreciate it. Uh, great video or no comments from him. Um, I mean, I've interacted with him. He kind of, you know, he knows who I, I'm the crazy shot guy who's always trying to ask him about the shooting. And the coaches are always like, yeah, you can't, don't do that because they don't want him to think about it. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I would, I would say that the odds were high that he, he saw it or he saw a part of it, uh, you know, and, and then that was his reaction, you know, to it. So uh, I don't know that. I don't know if he saw that one specifically for sure, but you know, in fact, now I should ask him the next time I see him, but, um, you know, it's not always easy to get much more than a couple sentences with him anyway. The PR, you know, is always protecting him. But, um, you know, I would I would think that the, uh, the odds are high that he did see it. And that was, you know, they, there was some inspiration there. Yeah, I w- was wondering how many, because you make all kinds of, how many videos do you churn out? Like, are you a once a week kind of a guy? Do you have goals like that monthly? Do oh, you no, just no, let I, it happen? I, I, our goal is four times a week and during the season at least. Got you. So how often do players come up to you about like, man, saw the video. Does it happen often? Rarely? Uh, it happens more and more. Cause here's the cool thing. I've been primarily cause I've been doing it for so darn long that and that, like, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years. So if you're a 21 year old, you know, NBA player, you know, and you were into basketball and you were into YouTube, then you could conceivably have been watching my videos since you were like 14, you gotcha. know, or 15. Or yeah, 13. that's a great point. So um, that's that happens now. And, you know, and, and it's, it's really great. Like, you know, when I when I meet, you know, the younger guys now, they all seem to know me and seem to know what I do. It's easy. So, you know, I, I just did around before this whole thing got shut down. 
And um, I was in the Raptors locker room, and it was really easy to do the interviews because they're like, oh, yeah, sure, hey, Coach Nick, let's do it, you know, <laughs> versus before where uh, when I had to try I, – I don't even know if I, could, I would tell the PR departments in the NBA. I don't think – maybe in the last, like, two or three years – uh, but before that, I didn't. I wouldn't. I, I had a hard time even telling them I was a YouTuber. I don't think I told them that. I mean, I, I don't. Even, I think I just said I had an online channel. Why? Because why not say you're YouTube, a YouTuber? Because YouTube was like this. You know, especially you know, a lot of PR guys are older, and oh. they're just like they. They just had no respect for the medium at all. I didn't think that it was anything worth uh, allowing access to. It was crazy. Gotcha. Some did kind of get it. But, you know, there are still some teams that kind of try and do the, the beat a big time guy. And um, it, it's harder for them to do that for me only because at this point, it's like I'm so sort of um, just, you know, around. I've been around for so long that, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you're it's, part of the culture, man. Right. It's like it would just be weird. Like, yeah, like no, we're not going to let you, you know, you win. But, you know, it might happen. I, I don't do a lot of that these days because. Interestingly enough, like, you know, I did a one-on-one with James Harden, and this was now a while ago, and, it, you know, it didn't get that many views compared to a game breakdown. It was weird. Huh. So uh, I don't do a ton of those only because it's not the most popular thing I do, but uh, it is nice, uh, even just from a credibility standpoint, uh, to do interviews with NBA coaches and players and, and interact that way. Yeah. Why do you think, do you think people just don't look at you as an interviewer? Because b-ball breakdown, like, so if you're interviewing Harden, you're not breaking him down and it doesn't go with your like target audience's expectations or well i i have adjusted those where i now bring a a um an ipad with me with some clips and i say hey can we talk about oh. these two clips and dude that uh, would be interesting again, as again, hell like having harden break him break down himself and like his thought process or any player like i would yeah. find that well lebron just tweeted that out he, he, he's thinking about maybe doing that and i just i quoted him saying yeah i already did this for you so let's do, you know, let's do it <laughs> um but um i haven't done it with a with uh, with like you know a top 20 player so it would be interesting to see if it happened there but you know i did one with tobias harris and that was really really good and it makes them look so smart and so friendly and, and so skilled and all those things you know, and it did okay. You know, it didn't do great. Um, What's your barometer so, you know, for we're great? We're trying to refine and figure out if it's, is it a thumbnail? Is it a title? Is it what's, what exactly is going on with that? Um, but you're right. It's an interesting conundrum because again, I guess it's like, you know, the brand is, and you know, I'm going to show you what's happening on the court. And if I'm doing an interview with Steve Kerr, um, even though I might cut some footage in there with what we're talking about, it just, you know, there is something there that doesn't quite, um, doesn't, you know, capture everybody all the time and so you know we're working on it but yeah it's just it's weird what's your uh how do you measure success like ten thousand views for 400 whatever's like how what makes you happy um <laughs> well you know our my my minimum these days on videos is probably like one hundred fifty thousand. um and i can nail you know we nail that like, you know, like four times a week uh although that's moving up so i think at this point i was talking to some like a couple guys that helped me with this and we were talking about, I think the, the, the floor needs to move up a little bit. So I think that, you know, the expectation now is probably like, you know, 170, 175,000. Uh, um, and then up from there, and then it goes as high as, you know, we'll have them that get a million views or 500,000. And, um, you know, some, some of them are evergreen. So you kind of lose track after a while. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that one got half a million views. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so what was you know, your pop champagne uh, view total? where you busted out the bottle and you were like, Oh uh -huh. man, we just hit 10 million. Woo! Like, well, the weirdest thing about all of this was I did a video on shooting while I was on the court, just me and some random guys. And that is the all time highest viewed video. 
Uh, it was a really good title. Uh, the thumbnail wasn't even that good, but whatever. And it used to be the number one viewed video for every month uh, going forward, no matter what, uh, for years. And that's at like, you know, four million maybe. So, but that was a gradual steady, like, you know, every month it, got, it just nailed it, the whatever, 60, 70,000 views, and then just, you know, going forward. So, um, you know, I, I don't even know if there was a pop the cork champagne kind of moment in that sense. Um, you know, because it's happened enough where it's like, oh, you know, and it's exciting. But um, I, I think I think maybe the the, the moment that I, I kind of discovered something was when I did a video um, comparing Isaiah Thomas from the Kings and Kyrie Irving of the Cavs at the time. Um, huh. the, the interesting thing was Kyrie was number one pick that year and Isaiah was the, the 60th pick. Yeah, right. Very last in the draft, right? Yeah, and so I did a video titled "Is Isaiah Thomas Better Than Kyrie Irving?" This is after their rookie years, and um, you know Kyrie ended up responding to it on Twitter, and so did Isaiah Thomas, and that caused all sorts of craziness because nobody, you know, at the time Isaiah was playing in Sacramento, nobody knew how good he was. Right, and I think he proved it while he was healthy that uh, I was a lot closer to being right than wrong, and that really was a nice feather in my cap to get that early. Uh, but to see the actual players respond to that was um, like blew me away. Yeah, that. Um, have you seen like? <laughs> do you ever worry that you're going to come across a player who's unhappy with the title and he's just going to lay you out? <laughs> like, it's happened. Like, has it? It has happened, and it doesn't matter. However, whatever feeling that player might have had against me that was negative, because all I keep thinking is. Oh my God! This guy is directly t- talking to me about a video <laughs> that I made that he watched. You know, in all the whole thing. Do you and mind? So, do you um, want to share that yeah. story? What was What's it? That? I said, "What was it?" Tell us the story. Like, well, I, I don't want to tell you what it was or who it was because you know it was a private messaging that was that God. that went back and forth. But um, you know, I, I could. I mean, the, the Isaiah thing I could tell you. We became kind of friendly, you know, out of that. Um, and talk, but it's, you know, the negative, that was the big one. That was the negative one. I'm trying to think of anybody else. Uh, although the Kyrie response to that video about Isaiah and him was also a, a little bit like, Hey, tell, tell, um, Isaiah to, to try having to be the only threat on a team where everyone's loading up to stop you. And then we'll uh, talk. So he, he was like that. Right. Um, but, um, but you know, so at any rate, all I could tell you was that, and the funny thing was it wasn't a very negative video about, about this player. Um, but somehow he took it, uh, in a, in a, in, a, in an interesting way. And I, um, we talked it through, I think we kind of got somewhere to a, a decent place by the end, <laughs> but it was, it, it was fascinating, <laughs> man. Yeah. I, cause, um, that's something, and I guess I'm thinking about access, right? So, so much of your access to actually interview would be related on these people being okay with you. Right. Well, you, you just described the, why the White House press corps doesn't ask Trump, you know, yeah. the, the, the question. <laughs> so um, true. Just get out. No and, suit and for you. Worse. You're right. The, the PR departments of all these teams are so they, they scrutinize everything. I mean, I was at a I went I was at a game and I know a lot of these players. Right. Like, you know, we're, we're friendly. Hey. And I literally just started to chat with one of them in the, in the bowels of the stadium. But like, you know, an hour and a half before the game, just like, Hey, what's going on? And like a PR guy just out of nowhere was like, yep, this is not, 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 not the time. Stop, you know, stop talking to him. Oh, wow. It was the weirdest thing. So like, that's how, um, how crazy those guys are to protect these players. And it's, I think the, the problem with me is I'm confusing to them because I'm a coach and I'm just going to ask them questions when we're on the record, you know, about, you know, footwork or about right. shooting. 
And, you know, they're, they're worried that I'm going to get them to say, oh, that guy's an a-hole and, you know, that guy's this and I'm not been paid enough. And it's like, I, that's not even, that's the farthest thing from any interest I would ever have. I don't care about any of that. And um, beyond maybe like a morbid curiosity about, oh, really? But it, it would never even permeate anything I would do on the subjects. So, um, you know, so, I, you know, that's, that's the, the hurdle I'm still trying to like convince everybody like, hey, I'm, I'm not here to do anything but talk about fundamentals and, the, and basketball. And, um, you know, so that's how that everyone walks on eggshells on, on, in that. And that's another probably another reason why I don't like to do too much of the coverage is during during the games uh, before and after, because everyone is so tense around those times. Yeah. I, I do like to go to shoot around sometimes because that's a lot more uh, relaxed. And at least, you know, you can kind of just the, the tension is not so thick in the air. But um, I don't need that extra tension in my life uh, and an extra stress. <laughs> so that and that's something that I bet a bunch of people have never really had access to. Like, I think a lot of people can connect a high school basketball practice, right? Oh, this is what my coach did to me or what our team did. But how does a typical, and I don't know if there is a typical, but a typical high school practice compared to like an NBA practice, what are what similarities, differences? What do you notice about it? Well, I was a head coach in high school and I ran practices, you know, similar to what you might see like in the training camp at the NBA. Now you have to remember in the NBA during the season, especially the second half of the season, a practice for them is like, they might watch some film, they might shoot around, they run five on zero. They don't do anything to risk any kind of injury. So those practices don't do a whole lot generally, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I ran practices just like I would have seen at the D1 level or NBA uh, practice. We did, you know, the same drills. You know, there's a lot of the similarities. There's not a lot of, you know, there, the, the thing I got a lot when I first started was, who the hell are you? You're a high school coach. You don't know anything to, like, you know, criticize NBA coaching and players. And I used to have to say, like, do you think that there's some sort of special Pandora's box of information that you only get when you get hired by an NBA team? <laughs> you know, it, like you, you can study this. People, by the way, there are people who are not coaches who have learned how to look at film and break it down who are great, you know, and they've never had a coaching job. Um, it helps without question, even at the, in my level of coaching high school players. And, you know, I've, I've been able to work with some pros, too, but um, it certainly helps. But. You know, basketball is basketball. That that rim is ten feet. The court is the same, and you know the ball is round. Um, and so, you know, so generally. Now that said, you will go there. There is a lot of uh, a gap in knowledge at the high school level too. So there will be a lot of crazy uh, stuff you might see that's just like, what is going on here? But then again, the same stuff I'll see at the T one level, and even I will I will see things that make me scratch my head uh, to no end at the NBA level in practices, like a three man like weave, or what kind of stuff. <laughs> Just, just like the the most ridiculous of old school things that are that are not applicable in a game, um, you know why are you doing that? Like that's not that's just like a thing you learned when you were a coach thirty years ago or when you were a player thirty years ago. And you know if you want to develop whatever skill you're trying in that drill, here's eight other drills that now have game speed and simulate a game, and you can get a lot more out of it in a lot uh, in more of an efficient manner instead of just you know like I guess like if you're trying to figure out what I'm talking about. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Here. Like three man uh, weave like or layup see, lines. Yeah. Well, layup lines is you know one thing, but even like, if you see those dribbling drills where they go from cone to cone to cone at 45 degree angles, uh, I've seen that in NBA practice, you know, and that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen because that's not basketball at all. You, you're just training your kids to try and, you know, ideally if you're dribbling the ball at the court, you want to go by the guy. So why would you train 45 degree angle, 45 degree angle? Guess, guess what? You see that happen in games. 
they actually start to do that. And now all of a sudden you're training defensively to like, well, you're used to the guy just going 45, 45. He'll never stop anybody then. So uh, you'll see that kind of stuff. And it's just like just blows my mind, uh, you know. And it made me think of this. So the point was like, oh, man, coaches are having kids do stuff that is not game related. And I wonder because you imagine talk to a bunch of people. How many coaches do you think actually study and try to evolve and like use YouTube and use internets and use forums versus, hey, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing it this long and I'm just going to roll. Oh, you know, it's a good question. I, I, I even remember when I was younger, I used to think I knew all, you know, so much about the game that I would see a video or whatever and I'd be looking on the side of my eye going, yeah, what's, this guy doesn't know any more than I do. And, and that was as a youngster, even though it, now I would almost feel like if you're a 21 year old and you're just starting to coach, you should be open to every possible, you know, piece of information you can get. Right. So it's this weird dichotomy because, you know, certainly at, at a certain age, you know, Roy Williams is not going to go to a coaching clinic. And learn how to coach. You don't think yeah. like late at night, he's just drinking some red wine, going through YouTube, trying to find like a better way <laughs> to like no. come off a not, screen drill. You know, Tom Izzo at Michigan State, same thing. And I know this because they don't change. They, they, he's running his offense from, you know, 25 years ago, which is actually kind of comforting in a way. Oh, look, there's that set where they do the double pin down. Like, right. it's amazing that they are still running the same exact things. Now, it works. He got some good shots on that. He probably got some good shots this year from that. So why change? Um, but there's methods as well that, that could change even from a communication standpoint. And that's the biggest thing. I feel like there's a certain, uh, age and I'm in that age. I learned to coach this way where you demand the players to have to come all the way to you and adjust ex everything toward you when you're just going to be unhappy doing that, you know? And, and so are the, so are they, you know, doing it that way. Well, yeah, you're fighting um, the tide, right? What's it said again? You're fighting the tide. It's like the tide's going to roll the way it is. Why are you trying to stop it? If the kid's are this certain way, you kind of need to channel it more so than break it. Right. And I have books from the twenties of basketball coaches complaining about players, not playing hard enough, not listening to the coach. So this whole notion of, Oh, it's this generation of player is, you know, worse than ever. No, it's always been that way. They always feel that way. And it, it really comes down to having a goal. I like to use that word. Some other guys don't, but if you like what is, in a game, for instance, as a coach, what is your goal? Well, it should be to get your players to play as well as they possibly can. And with the science that we now understand about chemistry in the brain, if that really is your goal, you would never just detonate all over the kid and grab him by the collar and right. scream and yell and throw him and bench him the way they, these coaches do. Um, you know, but they'd still do this stuff and they believe that somehow that's going to get through and make the, make sure the kid won't make whatever mistake he thought he made again. Right. And, uh, it, it just time and again, we see the instances of where it's just, it's so suboptimal. And of course, you know, Tom Izzo has won a lot of games, but you know what? He's, his X's and O's are good and he recruits elite athletes. So that's why he has a lot of high winning percentage. Right. Uh, the other things that he does. Uh, have to be so emotionally exhausting, borderline, uh, bordering on uh, abuse, uh, that it's like, why is this guy allowed to keep doing that? Where, um, what changed your mind for that? The, um, what, like, what is there something that happened or you experienced where you were like, man, this just ain't the right way to do it? You know, it's funny because um, it, it was always in the back of my mind. I even remember back in the day when they told you, you you can't dip the ball when you shoot, which is when you catch it, you shouldn't bring it down at all. Uh, it has to go straight up if you want to play D1 and be a shooter because otherwise it's too slow. And that always gnawed at me because I was a really good shooter in high school. 
And I was a really bad shooter when I tried to not dip the ball. Now, if you want to get, get uh, the equivalent of that would be, uh, imagine if you're going to swing a golf club and you start the golf club in front of you and just propel it forward from there. <laughs> you know, everybody needs to have a backswing. You bring it back and then you bring it forward. And that's the same reason why you need to have a dip. But these coaches, somebody in the 50s or the 60s or someone around that time, you know, just made that up, decided you're not going to do that. And then everyone started listening to it. But in my mind, I'd watch Larry Bird do it. I'd watch all the great shooters in the NBA do it. And I thought, well, why are they allowed to dip and I can't? So it was always in the back of my mind. And then when I uh, encountered the pro shot system and the guy, Paul Hoover, at the beginning, he, um, he was, um, he showed me all these, all this footage about why the tip is so important. And also, uh, 10 toes to the rim. Everyone learned you to be square to the rim. Um, when you shoot, when it turns out none of the great shooters ever really did that. And when I, when he exposed that for me, all of a sudden that opened up everything else. It was like a floodgate. All of a sudden the fog was lifted and I started looking at every piece of coaching that we've been doing that, you know, either it had it bothered me or not bothered me. And, and we started realizing, you know what, there's so much better ways. And then I met a, another guy, Brian McCormick, who wrote a couple books about the fake fundamentals. And that was like, whoa, <laughs> dude, that's you know, a great title. Weave. There's no practical application to that, but because they've been doing it since the 20s, we just do it. And right. he's like, here are six other drills that will get you whatever you want, like running and catching and movement, and, but it actually is like a game. So once those guys opened my eyes to it, I just started seeking it out. And, you know, and then B-Ball Breakdown really helped explode that because I can now interact with coaches all around the world at every level. And trust me, the best coaches I've been involved with are the high school level. And, um, why do you think that is all this stuff? What's that? Why do you think that high school level is uh creme de la creme? Well, it's not necessarily, but I guess my point was that the best coach I know is a high school coach. You know what I mean? Yeah. It versus like, you know, any of the NBA guys I know too. Um, now, part of the reason why, like Nick Nurse with the uh, Toronto Raptors is one of my favorites because he he tries things. They play zone. They mix it up. They press. They do all sorts of interesting yeah, things. What did they do in the finals? And, was that a triangle and two or a box and one? Yeah. He, he actually, he does both. Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> on one of them, it was, I wanted to call it, it like, it, it's kind of like a, almost a diamond in one, but the, the, the alignment to me was a one three with a one guy guarding a man to man. And, um, I actually talked to him, uh, not, uh, a few weeks ago about it. And he was like, well, it was really supposed to be a box and one, but depending on how the, 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 uh, the offense lines up, we flatten it out too. Cause I, I thought it was on purpose. And then, you know, a one, three alignment is like an amoeba defense, which is I ran. I got really excited. Hey, he's doing amoeba in one, right. uh, which I've also done. Uh, and who knows, maybe he'll now start to do it that way too. But the, the point being that he had coached in so many different leagues at so many different levels without any resources that you have to learn how to coach out of a bag. Gotcha. And that's exactly what he did versus other players or other coaches who maybe were former players and had never coached at any other level like but the NBA and got thrust right into that. You know, that skips so much of the process to some degree. Now, there are guys who have done it, like Steve Kerr is fantastic, right? And he, but he, and he did his homework. There are other, other coaches who didn't do that and, uh, you know, didn't master uh, those techniques and that, 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 out of necessity, how do you? What am I going to do? I'm so overmatched. I don't have athletes. What do I do here? Yeah. Uh, and Nick Nurse has that, and it's been that's what that's what I gravitate towards. Yeah, because it allows you to be creative, and I I liked what you said about the uh, lack of resources will almost force you to be creative. So if you're going around taking coaching jobs or having coaching jobs where you're at an athletic deficit, 
you got to figure out a way to be competitive or else it's just going to suck to get smashed. Yeah, it's the best way. And it's fun. That's fun. I like switching man to zone, to press, to, you know, let's run this play. We're going to get a great shot out of it. You know, that's always really exciting to me um, when, when that kind of stuff happens. Do you still coach basketball or are you just strictly videos now? I mean, I'm too busy to be a full-time coach of like a, of a program, but you know, I have a Wednesday night, um, you know, clinic or a lab. Uh, and I, I, I'm, you know, work with nine year olds right now and I'm nice. showing them all the things I would have shown a varsity high school player right. and they're picking it up and they're doing really well. And I'm, and I'm using a lot of techniques that I had mastered in between, uh, coaching. So I, I, I learned a lot of these really good things without having a team to use it on. So now I'm doing it with these, with these nine year olds. And I'm telling you, it's like, they just, they're really getting good. Uh, and, and they're getting a huge advantage. Um, Dude, it's not people. even necessarily me. I mean, I'm putting, I'm giving them the environment. And they're working on it on their own and they're learning how to unlock their own potential. And it's really exciting. So yeah, no, that's it's real easy coaching right now. It's real easy to underestimate what kids can do um, and learn. They're, they're sponges, man. You know, like they can learn a whole nother language. I'm sure they can understand some complex stuff in basketball if it's broken down for them. And even if they can't do it, okay, well, maybe next week you'll be able to do it or three weeks from right. now or a year from now. But let's show it to them. Let's give them something to work towards. And I, I oftentimes, because, you know, the, the newer, the one thing that might be different with kids these days, and it's been this way for like the millennials, I'd imagine, is there's a notion that um, that age range uh, might not like play as hard as they could possibly play. And it gives them an out because if they lose that game, they could say to themselves, well, you know what? I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't go all out. So that's why we didn't win. Right. Like that's, okay. which is like the strangest thing I'd ever heard. Cause I was not raised that way. I don't think our, my generation, my generation was, you're going to play until there's like nothing left of you on the floor <laughs> and that's going to, you know, yield the results or not. And, um, I remember somebody articulating that to me when I was a freshman high school coach or coaching the freshman in my old high school back in 1995. And a 13-year-old was able to articulate that 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 idea, and that blew me away uh, on a lot of levels. So um, yeah, it's the save your face theory, right? If somebody calls you out on it, you can kind of be like, "Man, I wasn't even trying, or I I didn't care," and that right. that that allows you to save face to criticism and accountability. Right. So so then there's a challenge. How do you now get kids like that to then to really give out? Well, the one mode of thought would be, well, let's, let's give them things that are way too advanced. Right. And they kind of like, Oh, I got to work on this so I can, I finally do it. Right. And then maybe one of the kids does get it. The other kid doesn't. And there's a competition there. So you can tap into it that way. And, uh, you know, this is all, this is really boils down to trust. And so when I mentioned before how coaches don't want to like move towards the players, they demand that they buy into this system and they have to move all the way toward me. And you're just going to be frustrated your whole career if that's how you approach this. Well, this is about trust. So, you know, a lot of times the coaches say, I, I can't put you in unless I trust that you're going to do what I tell you to do on the, on the, on the, in the game. Well, on the flip side, the player needs to trust the coach that he is doing everything he can to help them be better. Yeah. And so there's no better way to demonstrate that than to when you're doing a lot of the skill work and, you know, and you can have measurables to see that they're actually improving. And then you can work. That's what your focus on is. You can you can you know convince the players that you are there to help them play better. And that's what's exciting about things now. It even goes down to the things like the triple threat, which is what we all learned growing up. And it's it's dying and it should be extinct at some point because all you're doing is giving the defense a chance to catch up after you catch the ball. Right. And so when you train how to attack on the catch, you are now empowering every one of your players to be a threat. 
And that's now – you now move from having, you know, your ninth man or your tenth man praying he doesn't throw the ball away. No like, doubt. Running it, away it from away. it. <laughs> Running yeah, right. away like, from that it. thing. Don't ever shoot it. Just, you know, pass it. And now, you know, you can train them properly to be a threat. You know, they're not going to maybe shoot it all the time or whatever, but they're going to be a threat and make the defense have to react to them a little bit. And now you're empowering one through 12, one through 15, and uh, and then they can, they'll can they have that trust that you want to help them versus uh, – that coach won't even give me the time of day, you know, and all those different things. And so you can build that up. And then now you can get into a situation where the, the players play in a positive frame of mind and then the three start raining down. Do you have, when, when you had said one through 12, one through 15, I've always wondered, do you have an ideal number of kids Ten. on a team? <laughs> 10, that I, easy, I had huh? 12 my first year at varsity and the 11, 12 gave me the biggest headaches. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to play 10. And, and everyone will play, and then we won't have any problems. Okay. That, that worked a little bit, but, um, you know, there's always someone who's not happy with their playing time. Um, now, the problem with 10 is that you might have an injury, or you might have somebody getting sick. Right. Uh, I didn't mind so much. I'd bring, in the practice, I'd bring up, um, you know, a JV player. And then sometimes a JV player, I'd just pull them up to varsity, you know, and I'd have them play. Um, or bounce back and forth or whatever, have them be like a utility. So, um, you know, so you know, 12 probably is, is maybe the ideal because of that. But I, I had 10 the last year or two, and I was happy with that. Yeah, so it just comes down to if kids are getting in games versus kids sitting on a bench. And if kids are going to be sitting on a bench, kind of wide, they're almost not going to feel like they're a part of the team, right? Or it has to be hard for them to feel like they are a part of the team if they're not getting regular playing time. Right. It's a really a huge challenge. And even to play 10 guys regularly is hard. Um, but I would, I would imagine if a kid got, um, two stints, even if it was like two minutes each, you know, uh, that would be, that would be, that would be enough for someone in that position who's a 10th man or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the one stint where you throw them in there at the last, you know, two minutes of the game when it's a blowout. Those are the times where it doesn't really engender the goodwill that you might think it does. Yeah. I've always hated that, um, dude. I always felt that was disrespectful to a kid. Like, dude, you didn't play at all. I got 48 seconds. Go ahead in there, tiger. Well, I, I, the flip side is when you, every once in a while a kid might refuse to go in in those situations. That's even worse, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, because it's it's playing time. You should value it no matter what. But I get it. I, I certainly understand that, um, you know, and, and obviously if you reserve that to have for the kid who, who like that's the only time he ever gets in. And it, maybe you make it clear, like, listen, I don't really have a role for you. But if we're in a blowout and whatever, you know, I, I've even tried that, by the way. I tried to be as overt to somebody who I'm like, listen, I don't really have any playing time. You know, you're a nice kid. I, I won't mind having you around. But you have to understand that. And that didn't even go that well. Yeah. So it's not easy. Gotcha. What was your uh, favorite year of coaching when you were coaching basketball? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know. Let's see. Is that like asking you to pick I, you your know, favorite I, child? I think there was a what, – go ahead. <laughs> I said, is that like asking you to pick your favorite child? <laughs> uh, no, not, I don't know. I mean, it, some years are obviously much worse than others. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I guess there was a time when I was coaching the sophomore team when I was an assistant for the varsity and coaching the sophomore team. And we put the triangle offense in. I was, I'm a triangle offense coach. And, and, um, and they ran it so well. And it was so exciting to – was it JV or was it a sophomore? Uh, did, we might not even have – I can't remember now. It might have been a JV. Either way, I remember the, the players in that team. And that was a delight because they were really, really good and they really ran it well. Oh, you know what? There's, but, and there, there's another stint where uh, my second year when I varsity, as a varsity coach where I had a similar kind of thing where they really delighted in playing um, that offense. And, um, 
And so it was just sort of like the teamwork that went that was involved and the execution, you know, and, and being able to recognize. And we were all on the same page, like, oh, after a timeout, watch this. We're going to run pinch posts and we're going to get a layup. And everyone's like, yeah. And then they did it, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and then even the, the, the JV team, though, was even better. I remember one game where um, they were letting us catch the ball. So pinch post is like a high post action. And a lot of teams kind of get smart and they won't let you throw that pass. They'll deny it. And then like, okay, well, we have, there's a lot of other options. But this one team was letting us throw it there every time. And we were like laughing because we were like, this is going to be the easiest, you know, scoring game we'll ever have. Right. Um, and so th- th- those are those moments when you, your preparation and execution, they all kind of combine uh, into one thing. And it's, uh, you know, you never forget that. Okay. It, it's How about this? Uh, freshman team I was coaching years, maybe years before that. Uh they did an obvious, they, they did a thing out of the triangle that we had never ever worked on or like a just a so based on what the defense did and it was so beautiful and like a, ended up being like a backdoor cut for a layup and there wasn't even like a thought they just did it and it was one of those moments where it's like it's just how did that happen we had never worked on that ever before but right. the, all the work we did put in you know just resulted in this amazing teamwork play where it's like three passes in a row blah blah boom and a layup and um, and th- like you know, why would I remember one random play from a game that was you know, 25 years ago? But I do. Yeah. Does it bring tears to your eyes? Uh, a <laughs> lump in my throat a little bit, even then. <laughs> and unfortunately, the one kid that was involved should have been one of the kids that we loved and would have gone to it. We still talk to today, and he. I can't. I'll have to rack my brains. He ended up like not finishing, and there was some, something happened where he got disenchanted with the whole thing, and then didn't finish. So I remember. I remember even that. But even despite that, and I don't think he was an easy kid to coach. Despite that, uh, he was instrumental in this play happening. So you, you still get it. Nice, and it's also it, it's funny because if you ask people stuff, I wonder how many people would talk about like the championship season. Or like the first 20 win season, you know, versus like, dude, it was just, I was around a bunch of kids who really bought into what we were doing and they had enjoyed it. And that's what made my best coaching year is the fact that I was around kids who enjoyed doing the stuff that I enjoy doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would think that that's probably the most important thing is, is to be able to do that. Cause I remember even the kid who, um, we were, when we were, they were letting us play, run the pinch post and all that stuff. I had lunch with that kid years later and we were still sort of reminiscing about that, that those moments, um, versus any other, any other, like the sad things of like losing certain games. I will say this, when you talk to NBA players a lot, when they get back together after a while and they're like retired or whatever, it seems to me what they'll say a lot more often is that they talk about the losses more than the wins. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that's almost commonplace. It's like the girl that got away, the regret, the yeah. man c- should have done this, could have, yeah. if this, um, well, that's, what's going to happen in the video I'm dropping today because I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I lit Popovich up, but like there were some really head scratching things that he did, um, that, that, that were painful, uh, <laughs> that led to the outcome. And, um, it's happened. Listen, every coach at every level and every ability does do, do does those things. I, I can remember, you know, getting lauded for, you know, an amazing coaching job where we won a game. And then the next game, the same parent is just screaming and yelling at me thinking I should be fired, you know? No doubt. Dude. So, and I normally don't share too many stories, but you just made me think of this. So uh, I coach middle school basketball. Okay. Which is friggin' awesome. Like the middle school boys basketball, they're nuts. We're on the road. And something I've noticed is kids when they're on the road playing against like extended family, they just lose their mind. Like they're just, um, so if you got cousins and aunts and uncles in the stands, grandparents that normally don't get to see you play, you know the kid's going to play his worst game because he's just <laughs> all that pressure and excitement they can't deal with. So we should be up. We're not We're not really up. 
call a timeout, draw up a play. I've been on this kid. Dude, use your right hand on the right side of the rim. I've seen you do it in practice, man. Get confidence. Use it in the game. Like it, You're making the finishes harder than they need to be. Draw up the play, execute against the press. Kid catches a baseball pass, the, like works to perfection, jumps up, uses his right hand, slaps the backboard, and he's flexing like, ah! Oh! I drew up the play for the kid to score on the wrong court, and it was two points for the other team. <laughs> What? He went the wrong way? Yeah, and he went the wrong way because I told him to go the wrong way. I don't even know what I was thinking in that moment. Wow. But I've, I've never heard that. Dude, it, it, <laughs> dude it, it was one of the stupidest things I've ever done. And I can't even remember why. Like, I've, I've never not known what, what court you're scoring on. But the fact that we were able to laugh about it and do like the fact that the dude trusted me enough to just listen and the dude trusted enough to make the pass. And everybody was like there. And then we were like, God, we're all Wait. so stupid. God, we're all so wow. stupid. That's hilarious. Yeah. I, every time I thought I've heard it all, then I, I hear a story like that. And yeah, and I'm surprised that I was able to finish the year, man. Um, maybe if we'd have <laughs> lost the game, they'd have been like, dude, you're done. Just be, you're done. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, listen, I, it kind of reminds me of the play where we had driven uh, from L.A. to Santa Barbara. We got in just before the game. Everything is crazy. And, um, you know, a guy comes up to me and goes, hey, let me have your lineups for the, bo- the scorebook. I'm like, here, here they go. Uh, also, in the game starts, the, the refs, they blow the whistle and they give me a technical foul because the, the scorebook wasn't right. The, the players, I'm like, what are you talking about? I gave it to that guy. Well, that guy was the visiting scorekeeper not the main scorekeeper <laughs> never identified himself i didn't know who he was this the main scorekeeper took whatever i had written in um the uh, the the, the uh, program that i had sent in a month before right and one of my players didn't come yeah oh no one of my players joined the team late or something i think that was the one so he, he played and he wasn't in that original one and i and i thought i took care of it because a guy asked me to fill it out and i did and I, I argued, argued, they caught technical, they, they get the free throw, and then it, it was a shitty team. We never should have lost anyway. We shouldn't have even been down. But, you know, we, we had traveled. We're just, you know, tight. Yeah. So the whole game, is we can't get separation. We're finally up by three with, you know, five seconds to go, inbounding under our, our, our own basket. And I'm like, listen, just, you know, we'll run this like a, a Hail Mary. I have a, a high school, uh, he's a really good, you know, uh, uh, football player. So I'm like, you know, I streak him down. We'll throw it up there. He'll get it yeah. to the clock. At the very least, they'll follow us. Whatever it is, they won't have any time to come back. So I give the guy the guy to inbound the ball under the, underneath our basket, or you know, maybe on the side even. No, it was the baseline. So he they run the play. He throws the ball. He hits the ceiling. <laughs> now it gets worse. How, because how high was the ceiling? Was it tight or was no, it pretty it was up there? Ceiling. I never seen anything like that in my life. He hits the ceiling. <laughs> they inbound the ball and hit a three, tie the game. Awesome. Tie and lose. Awesome. <laughs> now, why are they up by three? Why are we only up by three? Because they got a technical foul in right? the beginning. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. So, oh, there you go. God, that's glorious. And, like, so your reaction when the ball hits the ceiling is. Um, I mean, my reaction is we got to play defense. Let's get set up. You know what gotcha. I mean? I don't even know if I let that, that get me at the, at the moment. I think I, it hit me later on, Right. you know, like, I, how do you cause again, you can't let body language influence as much. I mean, I pray, who knows? I probably did react, but right. you got to be careful in those situations because they still get the show must go on. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I, I don't remember if I had a reaction at the time, but I certainly, it, it was just stunning. It, it was, and it all happened. And then all of a sudden they threw it in. The guy just like throws up this long three. It, it was, it, you know, cause, oh, I know maybe at the time it shouldn't really have mattered because, oh, they still got to inbound the ball on the side and we're right. in, in position. And just, you know, it, it was, it was one of those things. So 
like if if that's me, I'm like, oh man, shit. I know they're gonna hit this three now. It's just karma. It's meant to be. <laughs> did you yeah, think well, did you think that way at all? Or you were like, ah. No, I, I don't think I thought that it's certainly before that, but certainly at, at, after that, you gotta wonder if the basketball gods or something going on uh with all that. And that, that was a rough year as it was with all those players. And that was my first year coaching uh as a high, head coach. And um it just sort of was a, a, a apropos of the whole season. Right. Love it. Love it. That's great. Hit the ceiling. Um, I think my plays definitely, my plays definitely makes me way more stupid than yours. <laughs> uh, right, well, no, but I had a father send a, an official email to the AD, you know, complaining because all I had to do was just inbound it and they would foul and whatever, oh, which no is way. true. But you know, also just, just get the ball in. I was sort of doing the same thing, but yeah, you know, dude, I, I, so I wasn't that smart either, I guess. God, an email. An email after that one play, huh? That's amazing to me. Uh, yeah, or who knows? That was a crazy guy who, you know, wrote several. He might have included that in the, with other ones. Who knows? Gotcha. It was uh, it was a good. Uh, it was it, everything is good after enough time when a comedy is tragedy plus time. Oh yeah. And um, also, all experience is good eventually. So you know, there's always lessons to be learned from even the worst experiences. I was also wondering where you um where do you get your ideas for your videos? Oh well, I you know it's a great question. Um, you know, Twitter is not always, oftentimes the worst place. Uh, listening to NBA radio uh, and hearing the the horrible takes usually gets uh, me going. Uh, and then okay. I think let's do a video on that and prove that that's wrong or prove it's right. Um, you know, I watch, uh, I read, you know, I just try and keep my finger on the pulse of what everybody wants to uh, do. Uh, certainly in the comments, there's always suggestions in the comments of, the, of YouTube videos and on Twitter. So I'll try and, okay. um, you know, listen to those and make a list. And then we just go, to, okay, what's, what should we do today? That kind of thing. Gotcha. Like, for instance, uh, I did the video today breaking down game six of the 2013 finals because uh, the NBA released that as a live thing, I believe, uh, last week. And it got like two, two, two million views. So I was like, oh, we should do that then. You know, clearly there's a demand. Gotcha. And do you have like a staff of people or is this just you? Uh, I got a couple guys now. I got one guy who helps me get my clips and I got another guy who helps me run my social media. So, you know, they're, they're sort of like, they're not like sort of full-time employees, but they're, they're, you know, guys who do a lot of work for me. How's that going for you? Transitioning from like a coach to almost like a businessman. Easy, uh, weird. Do you think of yourself as a business guy? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I think I'll probably think of myself more like a social media ma uh, marketing guy uh, in a way. Um, you know, so much of my videos now when we do sponsorships, it's sort of like you know, that's the real um, that's the best um, revenue stream. So um, I, I kind of feel like myself like in a way that I'm sort of like, just like a platform for advertising at this point. And um, and that's that's really helped me learn the ins and outs of that. Speaking of, you know, ridiculously old school, outdated modes of uh, of an industry, the advertising industry is is still on the same madmen, you know, model that we saw in the you know in the '60s. It's insane. How so? Just billboards. You know, they have like a, a very strict um, ad buy schedule, so you always know like. In December, there's going to be a big ramp up before Christmas, and then it goes really dead from like January through February, and then you know, then around, you know, it's weird that way, right? Like, wouldn't you look at that as an opportunity when like a lot of advertisers don't spend like to get into that market and like huh. and and do that? And so, but it hasn't really happened. So as a result, you just have these interesting uh, peaks and valleys throughout the year, all at the same time, and it's all from that from from then from the '60s. Really. 
yeah, these big companies and they don't want to spend money or they do spend money. They don't know how, and they, you know, and then they, they, they'll try and find a guy who can, Oh, you run the Twitter account. That'd be cool. You know? And then they sort of dip their toe in that end and stuff. But when you're talking about the you know, ad buys and stuff, it's still crazy. Are they open to the, Oh man, you get whatever, 175 views every time you post a video where we think you're worth that much. Does that matter to them or? Yeah. Okay. So they've completely bought in on clicks equaling revenue for their um, product. Yes. I mean, their, their bottom line is going to be how many conversions do we have? And I cannot control that. Uh, all I can control is uh, branding. How much, how many eyeballs can I get on that, on that thing? And that's how they should really be looking at this. Because in reality, if I do an ad for you and, you know, for a wallet, you know, they might not buy that wallet for six months. But because I did a great integration and it was funny and I have a really good, you know, channel myself like that, that branding is formed in their brain and they'll do it. But they're going to oftentimes evaluate this on the like in that week, how many people bought. And it's so myopic. And as a result, you know, I do have like SeatGeek is one of my long term uh, advertisers and they totally get it. And they give me carte blanche to do whatever I like. And it's like we me SeatGeek and B-Ball Breakdown are sort of like inseparable at this point. And they're I'm sure they're ecstatic to be able to have, uh, you know, at least once a week, uh, just constant branding of their product and people thinking about it because they know that they'll keep using uh, my, uh, their service, you know, based on people watching my videos. I, I wish more of those advertisers would feel the same way. Gotcha. So they they look for a little spike in purchasing. Do you have like a code like, hey, at uh, checkout, put in B-Ball Breakdown 38 and get yeah, 5% no. off? Is that yeah, like the, one of those the, things? The code is B-Ball. Gotcha. <laughs> so if you want to get 20 bucks off your first purchase, visit Seeky, you can use my code. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, you get a code generally. Uh, you also get like maybe a link, a special link that they could track. Um, okay. And you know, and, and I get it. I get it. You you want to, if you spend a thousand bucks on an ad, you want to make sure you make 1200 or 2000 or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't work that way that quickly. And what I can control is the, the quality of the, of the ad, how it seamlessly integrates into my videos, which I do. And, um, and, and, and just giving that positive vibe, you know, to the viewer, uh, you know, either subliminally or, you know, overtly consciously that that's what you're going to want to use when you need this certain product. Do you take any ad or have you said no to people where you're like, man, I don't want well, that associated I, with me? I'm a whore. So I generally will do anything, <laughs> but sometimes they'll like, they'll want me to do like an unboxing. I'm like, yeah, I just don't do those. Uh, that won't work. Uh, or they want me to do a dedicated video to their product. I'm like, yeah, I don't do that either. Um, but, um, you know, gambling is, you can't do that anymore, I guess on, on YouTube. So that's one. Um, but other than that, you know, the, I, it, as long as it's somewhat tangentially related to my demographic, uh, then yeah, I'm, I'm in. Do you, do people um, approach you? Do companies approach you or are you approaching companies and thinking, Hey, this will be a good fit. Here's my pitch. It's a little bit, again, it's the sort of old school model. I, they do approach me directly sometimes. And then I have a, I have a company I work with that gets me ads as well. Uh, but they're just sort of, they go to a clearinghouse. There's like four or five of these, these advertising companies that deal directly with all the big advertisers. And so they're sort of a middleman. And, uh, they're the ones, okay, we got a million dollars to spend here. Let's, you know, find here, here, there. And that's how they do that. Uh, it's, it's still kind of silly. I feel like the, the advertisers should just work directly. It's always been the best, um, relationships I've had. And when I get to deal directly with them and, uh, I don't have to deal with anybody else in between, it's taking their cut and all that stuff. So, uh, but that, that's, you know, it's, it kind of works both ways for me. Gotcha. Um, it's so, and I don't, it's not like I'm asking you how much money you make, but 
how cool was it? Are, are you self-sustaining? Like, is this your primary source of income, the advertising on your videos? Yeah. I mean, that's the Dude, problem. that's got to be awesome. Like now, because if I, if I told myself five years ago I'd be making what I make now, I, I would be jumping for joy. But now it's like, well, how can I make more? And it's like, when do you ever – when do you ever stop? Like, that's the problem. And I'm worried about that. Cause it's like a soul killing thing. And, um, and then you're just grinding, grinding. And it's like, well, just trying to get more money. And that's frustrating to me. So I, I kind of hope I'm getting somewhere where it's like, this is good and we're getting it working and we can, you know, we can continue to make more money without doing more work. And that's right. obviously the, the key to success. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, by nature of just, increasing the size of my audience, I make more money without having to make any more videos. So that's, I'm already on that track now. It's nice to accelerate that a little bit more, but, um, you know, it is self-sustaining. I've been making, you know, a living on at this for several years now. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a just an amazing time that we had that you can, that YouTube exists. Yeah. I, um, what was, so was that always the goal of the videos? Had you always hoped that, man, I'm gonna create this, um, company. And that's going to be my revenue stream or was it like hard to kind of give up coaching in order to uh, make this the full-time thing? Well, I was doing both when I started. I started uh, the, the channel like in May of that whatever year and I, then I became a head coach in August of that year. So I kind of always were – in the first three years of B-Ball Breakdown, I was also coaching. And so you know, B-Ball Breakdown sort of wasn't doing as well as it could have because I wasn't doing it full-time. So the day I stopped coaching was the day that I that the channel blew up. Um, and I finally just invested all my time and effort into it. Now it still took me, um, you know, a few years to kind of get that revenue working, uh, that I could, you know, live on that, uh, I think. Um, but it was, um, so at that point, I think that was when I was gunning for it. I think when I started, I wasn't really sure what I, what my intention was. I don't even think I imagined I could monetize, um, in the beginning anyway. And so, um, that wasn't really on my on my radar until probably yeah when, once I went full time to doing this that was when I was like okay let's really let's try and blow this out of the water and and make it a, a viable business. How high were you hoping to go coaching wise? Like, did you have NBA head coach aspirations? Did you just want oh, like small town no. college? Well, I was a basketball manager at Wisconsin, and a lot of those guys, you know, dispersed into the realm of the college coaching and whatever. Um, it was a, I have friends that did that. It was a very nomadic life. They never lived more than one in one town for more than a couple of years at a time. Uh, you could be the best assistant coach of all time in the world ever, but if your boss gets fired, you get fired. And uh -huh. it's just a terrible deal. So I avoided coaching actually out of college uh, for a while. I was writing screenplays and working on commercials and films, and so. Uh, but I was always like more passionate about basketball, no matter what I was doing. I was, you know, I was writing screenplays, but I go play pickup and just feel like, gosh, I really care about this more. And so I finally just sort of fell into coaching again um, after moving out to LA, and um, and then kind of uh, went away from it for a while after that, uh, and then. Uh, uh, and then somehow it started doing the YouTube and the coaching all sort of one because I kind of had all these different, um, uh, ex ex you know, I was experienced doing both editing and coaching. So, um, but the, the point being that um, I'm not so sure I'm a great assistant coach. So that's my other problem. Um, <laughs> Too opinionated. Yeah. You just question yeah. all the time. You're like, no, dude, this is better. Yeah. Well, my, I, my mentor, who I'm still really almost uh, basically best friends with now, um, 
it, it was great to work with. And it, it, he would often like you know, he would beat me by a split second to like the decisions. Like I would I would suggest something, and he'd just barely get there before I could say it. And we were on the same page, and it was really great to work with him. And I've worked with other guys in his, as assistants who are just like I'm like this isn't gonna this is what they're doing is bad, and I can't really help support them to do that. And that was a real problem to be involved in those situations. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, there are some people that really enjoy being the, the, the head coach, and, and I certainly do. Uh, and I, I like to be in the situations where I can make those decisions. So, um, but uh, the, the I just wasn't willing to, you know, even now, like, would I try and gun for an MBA job? Um you know, I don't, I don't want to travel for, you know, 75% of the year. I like being home. I have a family. Right. And so I just don't see my lifestyle wise ever wanting to be part of that. I'd much rather be a consultant, you know, and do that. And I, would, I know, and there are a couple of MBA guys I work with a little bit and I like to make that into more of a business, but that's just on my own time and on their time. And I don't have to like sit there traveling with the team. So that's the biggest hurdle that I think would keep me away from, you know, any of those higher profile jobs. Gotcha. Yeah. The, the nomadic part I've, always had a hard time understanding like the it's almost like uh job chasing and it's just freaking it's got to be terrible <laughs> to just move that often to make sure that you can make money and provide you know, yeah. that's um yeah and all those friends like you know they, they they had to start families really late and they you know and it's like uh in life and it's like you know i, I just i guess i never really wanted to do that it it just seemed too hard uh, you know, in a way, uh, and you have to swallow so much to get to do that. Um, you know, I'm much happier doing what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, pitch me your screenplay. Okay. Well, I, the, the one that went around that actually, you know, did get some interest at the time at the time or the biggest interest was, uh, it was a thriller about a, an, a guy, an FBI agent who goes undercover on the stock market to catch front running traders. Oh. Which really happened. I actually worked at the Mercantile Exchange in the '80s in the summers, and uh, that this happened. Uh, but he ended up he ends up uncovering uh, a terrorist ring that was blowing up, uh, that was trading on the stocks, and they were blowing up. Which actually really happened, by the way, 9/11. So when I was doing research for this, this was before 9/11, just before 9/11. I, I thought I'd be walking out of the library expecting like bullets to explode over my head because I just discovered something that you know someone's working on, and. Um, <laughs> You know, so I had that one, and of course, 9/11 hit, and then it kind of no one really wanted to do a a video about a terrorist that were planning to to you know blow up the Sears Tower in Chicago. Um, you know, it, it was it's kind of actually it's kind of weird to think about it because it was kind of very similar to what 9/11 ended up being. Man, I did not expect that at all. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'm telling you, my my life is like Slumdog Millionaire. So all those little random things I did and all the experiences I had that made me feel like maybe I was just spinning my wheels and not getting anywhere, it turned out all those things really helped me for what I'm doing now in some way. Yeah, right. I, by the way, I, I did improv comedy. I, you know, I performed at uh, Improv Olympic in Chicago for years, and uh, and that helps now. So it's like all, all sorts of stuff. No way. Dude, yeah. So you've what's something you've never done? Good God. Like just dropping <laughs> like mercantile exchange, improv, screenwrite, edit, and like – Sunday school teacher? Is that something that's not in your bag of tricks? Yeah. Uh, no. Did I? No. I no. I never taught Sunday school. I'm trying to think if I did any kind of religious stuff like that. But uh, no. Um, no. But it, you know, it, it's right. It's it's like you know, you can argue that it's one of those things where you, you don't know what you want to do and you're sort of meandering and wandering around and, and whatever. But uh, if you're a, alert and aware and and have a mindset about it, you can learn and it actually does help you. You know, at some point. So, right. um, 
you know, it's kind of like that. There, there used to be a show, and I think it just came back. My buddy uh, is produced, wrote it, uh, Amazing Stories. Um, it's on, it might be like Disney Plus now, but uh, back in the day, it was on TV, and it was Spielberg produced. And uh, Mark Hamill, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker was in one, and um, he was a hoarder. Right. He wouldn't throw anything away. And he was, you know, he, he was down on his luck. He had no money. He was, you know, 60 years old. And he had all he had left was his old car and, and all his crap thrown into it. And then at the end of the thing, it turns out all that stuff was worth so much money because it was the most rare toys and the more rare whatever was in there. And he became this really wealthy guy. <laughs> so I always I always remember that story because it tells you, like, you know, it, 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 you never know what uh, experiences are really going to help. Yeah, that's that's a very solid analogy. Just looking at experiences as a bunch of stuff to hold on to in order to pull it out whenever you need it. That's um I might Yeah, use absolutely. That. Interesting, man. Um well, I wanted to thank you for your time. Um I was it was pretty interesting just hearing about the business aspect of it. I um I don't know. I I I always find it cool when people create stuff and then figure out a way to enjoy it and then also live off of it. You know, I think a lot of people get stuck, man, having to do jobs that they hate or things they don't enjoy. And like, that's got to screw up, like even on like a physiological level in your body, if you're doing something you don't enjoy every day, like, does it lead to cancer? You know, like, well, this, this, this might uh, appeal to you as well. There there was an article in the New York times, you know, six months ago uh, about, um, this, this, pairing these these two young women you know in their 20s that like they're going to start a podcast and this is going to be huge and they're going to have all you know get all these sponsors and make all this money right and they it, it failed because they did like three episodes and they didn't get enough listens and that was it and i just wanted to i also couldn't stop laughing because <laughs> it's like what do you think you really think that you're going to be able to get a podcast going up and running and get you know 10,000 listens an episode after three yeah. <laughs> after like three weeks or a month uh, you know, it's so much hard work, no matter what you want, how you want to slice it, even though it seems like, oh, here I am now it's doing really well, but it's really like that. I guess that's what you mean. You have to love it because you have to be able to do it and do it and do it for a long time before it actually becomes viable. Yeah. And it, it, I almost think like the grind of coaching too, where you put in all these practices and you just hope eventually like your, your, your tear up moment play <laughs> where you're like, how, oh shit, how did that happen? Oh, it's the result yes. of blank amount of plans, blanks amount of reps, blank amount of breakdowns. And then you never know when it's going to happen, but that shit will happen. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Man. Awesome. Well, dude, I really can't thank you enough for your time. Um, it was, I really appreciate it. I was interested in, um, just hearing about you, um, seeing you the basketball wise. I've like, how many people do you think have no idea that improv guy, stock exchange guy, um, let the air conditioning guy in the house guy, like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I probably you know I, I don't talk about that that much at all, uh, and that's interesting. But in fact, I haven't mentioned uh, doing improv in a long time. It's kind of funny, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's one of those weird things. Um, I was actually there was something else I was going to say that I did, uh, and now I'm totally blanky. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I'm telling you, man, it's like. Um, some people are, are singularly focused and then have something in mind that they want to do in early age and that's great and other people don't and um, or just have a lot of interests you know I, I was an artist oh uh, you know I was an art major in college I, I was a painter you know so and by the way that also explains a lot too just because I approach this from like that kind of a uh, of a collaborative uh, approach in a way where you realize that you know you need 
people to all combine into something to create it. Like even like a movie, for instance. Right. You know, I mean, I, I was a filmmaker. I've, I've made short films. I've done all sorts of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy uh, when you think about it. And I, I you know, it's it's funny. I, I don't. It seems like so long ago now, but it's not that long. Yeah, I'd I'd say um, if I had to think back, man, like it's almost like just your natural. Your story is one of like just natural curiosity, just being into shit. And I think like yeah. that's something that can go away in a lot of people and almost goes to like what you're saying with those coaches who get stuck in their ways. It's like, how are you just not naturally curious on, is there something else out there? An explorer mentality, you know? And then the, and the coaches that scream and yell at me on Twitter, um, you know, I have to tell them like, no, I'm the good guy. (laughs) I'm here to help, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and they don't want to hear it. It's interesting that that generally tells me how, uh, where you land as far as uh, coaching goes, because, uh, either you could be like, yeah, I don't like that idea. I'm not going to use that. Or you could be like, F you, you're stupid. You should never even coach another 10, you know, 10 year old, much less anybody older than that, you know? And it's that reaction that tells you a lot more about that, the coach than it is about what I'm saying, you know, about the game. How and I and I almost ended it, but now I'm like kind of curious if you have the time. How do Twitter audiences compare to improv audiences? Like, who's more ruthless and relentless and just oh, won't? Uh, Twitter, Twitter, without question. Yeah, without question, Twitter. Uh, you know, the, the audience. You know, when you're doing improv, long form improv, like I was doing, you know, you're all in on it. It's like a one big inside joke, and everybody is they're into it and they're there because they want to be entertained. You know, it's a, it's a, it's so much different. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it's night and day, but there's a lot of similarities between playing on a team in basketball and being on a team in improv. Really? Just yes. knowing how to like play off, like, Hey, I'm going to backdoor cut right here, or I'm going to set you this screen to get you open all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically games. You're, you're kind of playing a game. What is the game of the scene? You know, and that helps you inform the structure and how you can then get in and get out of it and make it work best. Now it doesn't always work. You know, you miss shots just like you yeah, do right? in games. Um, and, uh, but, but when it's working and when everyone's on the same page and it's flowing like that, it's almost like it's scripted without yeah. being scripted. It's exactly like what basketball should be. Yeah. Running the triangle, right? So yes. you as a, you as an improv player, when you got on the court, are you a, Hey man, every time I get it, I'm shooting. Are you a pass first point guard? Or are you like a post dominator? Who are you as an improv player? I was like uh, Steve Nash. Oh, Did- so I didn't shoot enough. I was a really good shooter, but they didn't, you know, you couldn't shoot off the dribble off from three. Like that just never happened. And so you, you, you get cut if you tried that. So, <laughs> but, uh, but here's the thing that I get frustrated with, um, before, cause I have to go in a minute, but, um, the thing that I get frustrated with is I used to screw around with isolating and like scoring on guys and having these step back moves, but I never would have dared do it in a game. I never really dared work on it much. And I'm like, God damn, I would, I was really, I was good at that, but I just never really had the mindset where everyone, all the focus is going to be on me for the next 30 seconds straight. Uh-huh. I always needed to be part of a team and sort of share all that energy. Um, and it made me a worse player because, you know, and, and if I were growing up now, we would have been de- developing all the delays dribble stuff that Harden does and I would have been shooting off the dribble from three from really deep which I could do and just never just didn't feel comfortable with or wasn't allowed to and um and so it's a whole different thing although the mindset for me would still be I enjoy passing I I love to throw the Magic Johnson style passes he was my favorite player and he was the guy who I I emulated a lot but um you know I tried playing like Steve Nash a lot I probably should have played more like Steve Kerr um (laughs) although with the training we have now, then I, I could have been Steve Nash. That was right. probably that athletic. 
or that unathletic, whatever you want to consider I, Nash. Well, no, dude, he's uber athletic. People don't realize how good of an athlete yeah, he, he was is. Really, he had a quick twitch much. I was really quick too. Um, I was actually wondering, no, I was hoping for the analogy for you on the improv stage. So are you the dude trying to help people nail the joke yep. so they get the laugh kind of a yes. thing? Same. I was always that, like it's more of a director. So I'd always sort of set him up and like just sort of be the, the, the glue. I was a glue guy. Gotcha. Man, what a great role to have. All right, man. Well, this Every will once be once in a while, right? You, you, hit, you hit some shots, right? But yeah. uh, most of the time, I'm as a glue guy. Yeah. Well, it's just fun to be part of stuff, right? And that's an awesome yeah. mentality to have. All right. So then this will actually be the ending then. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you again so much for your time. It was great getting to know you, coach. I appreciate it. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Yep. I'd like to thank Coach Nick for taking the time to come on and conversate. I'd also like to remind you to take time the next time you see a rainbow. Sit down and appreciate nature's fine beauty. Friend, follow, subscribe to the pod, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye.